Hey, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, or Reddit, you probably already know this, but I'm putting together a family tree for the Heptarchy. It's color-coded so you can follow the various different family lines throughout history and see who's mixing with who and what the lineage of various kings are. It's not 100% complete yet, but it's pretty damn big. And as far as I know, no one has done this before. So if you want to go check it out, it's over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com and just click on resources and then the Heptarchy family tree. It's pretty cool. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Chris, William, and Megan for contributing already. All right, as you already know, King Aethelbald of Mercia had had a bit of a rough start what with being exiled and living in a swamp. But once he was able to take the throne, he hit the ground running, and it wasn't long before he was the supreme power in the south, with even Bede writing about how he dominated the kingdoms south of the Humber. But it wasn't all wine and roses for Aethelbald. The thing is that he was in a tough situation in many ways. Despite the fact that his neighboring kingdoms were all collapsing faster than the world's respect for FIFA, King Aethelbald took Mercia when it was in shambles. And that's not hyperbole. The kingdom was a shadow of what it was under Penda. And think about what that looked like for Aethelbald. I mean, he wasn't from the direct ruling line, but rather, he was from a separate branch. And before he even made a move for the throne, he had already lost one political battle and had spent years in exile as a result. That would have been bad on its own, but don't forget that the previous king, the one who beat him and kicked him out, was a complete and utter nutter. Yet, he still had enough support to pull off that exile, and presumably had a strong enough grasp on power that even when Aethelbald started gaining support from Mercian nobles, St. Guthlac, and maybe even the Kingdom of East Anglia, the exiled Aethling was still unable to take the throne until crazy King Cholred was dead. That's pretty bad, and it suggests that not everybody was against King Cholred, despite his terrible reputation. And also, not everyone was a fan of Aethelbald. So with that in mind, how secure do you think Aethelbald would have been in his new kingdom? He must have suspected that at least a few of his subjects would have preferred that the kingdom had gone to someone from the line of Penda. Perhaps to Cholwald, if he existed, or maybe to someone on the female line. But instead, Aethelbald, from the line of Aowa, was sitting on the throne. So things were tough in those early years, and his neighbors, at least early on, were still forces to be reckoned with. But over time, the power of his neighbors faltered, and King Aethelbald was able to start to stretch his legs. He was exercising power over his southern neighbors, and he also kept an eye on Mercia's enemy to the north, Northumbria. In 737, we hear of his first raid into Northumbria, and it must have gone well because he followed it up three years later, in 740, with yet another raid. This time, he plundered the northern kingdom while the new king Aidbert of Northumbria was distracted fighting the Picts. Which is a bit cheeky, but effective. So Mercia's star was rising. 
It looks like right around at the same time, King Aethelbald pushed on his western border as well. Welsh sources speak about the Mercians raiding upon their eastern border, maybe as part of the 743 campaign. There's a reference on the Pillar of Eliseg that says the Mercians were driven from Poes in the middle 8th century. So right about now. So that might have been the instigating event for this raid, or perhaps it was in response to Aethelbald's raid. It's hard to know exactly what was happening there, but scholars largely agree that it was right around this point in history that Mercia was securing its western border with the Welsh kingdoms. So, Aethelbald was on the move. Now, looking at the coinage, despite his power, it doesn't look like Aethelbald was able to impose uniform coinage in southern England. So perhaps he wasn't completely supreme. However, Due to instability both in England and on the continent during this era, the lack of uniformity and gradual debasement of the coins isn't all that surprising. In fact, the only thing that really is surprising is that Northumbria somehow produced pure silver coins for a short period of time under the rule of King Aidbert, that same king who had been fighting the Picts. And he ruled from about 737 to 758. So I don't know exactly what Aidbert had that Aethelbald didn't, but a lack of stable currency aside, King Aethelbald of Mercia does seem like he was pretty damn good at his job. He was securing his borders, he was stretching his legs into other kingdoms, he was what you wanted with a Middle Ages king. Where he seemed to be getting into trouble, though, was with his nun habit. And despite his efforts to bolster his standing with the church through gifts, if St. Boniface's letter is anything to go on, it still was a bit of a problem. People were getting kind of ticked off. And actually, this duality, with him giving things to the church while also running around with the Brides of Christ, isn't just a good illustration of the odd side effect of having the religious houses stacked with family members of royal dynasties but it's also a good indication of one of the major problems with King Aethelbald's rule, and perhaps with rule in general during this period in time. If Bede is correct, and from the records it looks like he was, this was an increasingly unstable era. And despite the fact that Aethelbald was a rather powerful king in the south, he was still probably in a rather precarious position. As we just talked about, he came into the throne in rather dubious circumstances, and most of the English kingdoms were racked with one sort of dynastic issue or another. So while he might have been in good company, it still wasn't good for him. So as we touched upon briefly last time, Aethelbald running around with nuns might have been his attempt to deal with the treacherous English politics of the time. And let me explain that a little bit. From the records we have, it seems that Mercian politics very well might have been a bit like a pride of lions. If you're watching a documentary on lions, or if you're out in the savannah if you're really lucky, it's probably easy to get distracted by the lion, just like it's easy to get distracted with kings. But in many ways, the lionesses are the ones who are running the show. And in Mercia, it does seem like a key aspect of the king's claim to the throne came through his partner. These ladies were not just window dressing, they were lionesses. So if Aethelbald was feeling insecure, he might have wanted to tie himself to numerous families while also avoiding having to exclusively pick one family and forsake all others. I mean, think about that. There are plenty of downsides, 
but it's possible that what he was hoping to do is essentially have his pen in a bunch of different pots of ink rather than having to go and put all of his eggs in one basket and hope that that support was enough to hold off all the other angry families. And on top of it, he might not have wanted to share power with a queen, and he probably would have had to if he married a girl. It's a common theory for what was going on here, but as we learned about last week, his plan didn't work out all that well because it seems that the church was pretty annoyed by what was happening, and reading between the lines, it seems that Boniface was also warning the king that his life might be in danger due to his extracurricular activities. But as I said, King Ethelbald is a complex character. Simply because he was cavorting with nuns doesn't mean that he wasn't keenly interested in ecclesiastical matters, nor does it mean that he was hostile to the church. To the contrary, he was quite generous with the clergy, and he took an active role in resolving church issues. Which brings us to the Council of Clove Show. Looking at the record, St. Boniface seems to have been desperate for Archbishop Cuthbert to hold a synod like the Franks had done, and to reform the English church. Now we'll get to what was bothering Boniface in a moment, but first, let's talk about what he was requesting. Councils, at their basic level, are collections of people discussing how the church should handle certain issues. But really, they're far more complex than that. They weren't simply liturgical affairs, but rather, there was a mix of prominent people from English society. You had bishops, priests, abbots, thanes, kings, and other figures from the upper echelons all present. Yeah, and you heard that right. There were lay people weighing in on church matters at councils. And that might sound rather strange from our modern perspective, the idea of kings and nobles deciding how the church should act. Sure, Henry VIII got involved when he decided to start his own church to improve his dating prospects, but typically that's seen as more of an aberration than as a norm. But actually, for the Anglo-Saxons, having kings make decisions regarding the church, much like how King Oswiu played referee between the Celtic and Roman branches of Christianity, was a rather common affair, and councils were a major way that they would get involved. So basically, while this was the church discussing church matters, you still had the king and his men there discussing the issues and sometimes deciding them. This was actually rather advantageous for the church because it was assumed that by having the most powerful monarch of the south present and involved, he would hold sway over the southern English and be able to institute what the council decided. Don't forget that this was before there was an England, so in order to stretch these decrees into the various English kingdoms, they had to do some political wrangling. By having the most powerful king in the south present, they were probably hoping to use his authority to extend the decisions throughout the Heptarchy, or at least throughout the kingdoms in the south. So when you imagine this in your mind's eye, it wasn't just a collection of powerful members of the clergy. It also had aspects that made it look like the king's council, the word that they would have used was the Wittenagamot, the collection of wise men. Now, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had been holding councils for quite some time by this point in the story. In fact, according to Bede, the regular use of councils started about three quarters of a century earlier. We're told that Archbishop Theodore of Tarsus declared that yearly synod should be held on the 1st of August every year at Clove Show. Now, to this day, we're not sure where Clove Show was, but due to its prominence in this period of history, it's thought that it was probably within the Mercian-dominated South. 
If you want to go looking for it, the name itself might give you a little bit of a hint. Clove Show roughly translates to Hillspur bisected by a cleft. So somewhere in the Midlands, if you find a hill with kind of a tongue-like thing with a cleft, that might be Clove Show. Anyway, the point is that this wasn't a new thing by the time Aethelbald, Boniface, and Cuthbert got involved. Though it does appear that there hadn't been one in a while. Well, there was a small one five years earlier, and that one looks like it was the first one in a very long time. But not much was really addressed at that council. So Bonnie made it really clear that there was a need for a new council. And we're told that in 747, possibly on August 1st, a council was inaugurated at Clove Show. Now, as the most powerful monarch in the region, King Aethelbald reigned as the leader of the council, and the English clergy had a lot that they wanted to discuss. The state of the church in England was, ugh, well, it was a bit wild and woolly. First off, we already know that the religious houses were getting packed with members of royal dynasties due to the concentration of power that was occurring within the church. And that appears to have resulted in individuals joining religious orders without having all that much of an interest in the actual tenets of the religion. So that's a problem right there. And it should come as no surprise that we have ecclesiastical leaders living extravagantly, with some of them even wearing clothing that would be more fitting on a Roman senator than on someone who is ostensibly supposed to be living in the manner of Christ. And to make matters worse, the clergy weren't just dressing in a manner that would make Lady Gaga blush, but they were also drinking like fishes. The English were famous, even by this point in history, for their enthusiasm for alcohol. But the clergy were really starting to get out of control. Do you remember back in the food episodes where I discussed how much monks would get to drink, and also how there were religious condemnations due to monks having, you know, drunken orgies? Well, those condemnations came from right at about this point in time. So at least some of these monasteries seem to have been behaving more like frat houses than actual religious orders. But on the other hand, how can this even be a surprise? I mean, you're stacking these institutions with members of power-hungry dynasties rather than individuals who heard the call. So of course you're going to get some rather irreligious and wild behavior in there. And this decadence freaked out contemporary luminaries like St. Boniface. And that was part of what led to this need for a council. But speaking of these dynasties, some of them were really going the full nine, and instead of just having friendly family members heading up the houses, they decided to exert direct control over them without having to go through the inconvenience of having to, you know, having to actually join and worship. So we're told that there were monasteries and religious houses that were under direct control of the lay population. So basically what we're talking about here is the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of Donald Trump owning a bunch of monks. Just let that sink in for a minute. So in the over 150 years since St. Augustine came to Kent, the English church had gone through a number of changes, and it had certainly grown in popularity, but it really was a bit of a mess. So the council, with the guidance of King Aethelbald and Archbishop Cuthbert, quote, diligently inquired into the needs of religion, the creed as delivered by the ancient teachings of the fathers, and carefully examined how things were ordered at the first beginning of the church here in England, and where the honor of the monasteries according to the rules of justice was maintained, end quote. Basically, they're trying to go back to basics. And in the end, 
they decided that they needed to reform the monasteries that were corrupted by, quote, tyrannical greed, end quote. In an effort to accomplish that, monks were now forbidden from mixing with lay people. They were also forbidden from conducting secular business. So the monks had to live like, uh, well, monks. It's shocking that they had to have a council tell them that, but that was how bad the church was. And then, to give you a sense of what these monasteries must have been like, they were also expressly forbidden from singing songs like secular poets and from getting blind, stinking drunk. Basically, monks were now banned from singing drinking songs about bow-legged women. These early monasteries must have been a ton of fun, but probably not that religious. But this council was not just a discussion of ecclesiastical drunkenness, excess, and immorality. It seems that King Aethelbald and some of the other English kings were treating the members of the church living within their kingdoms like any of their other subjects. And so they were putting them to work. Needless to say, the church resented being required to work on, quote, royal buildings and other works, end quote. This was actually a rather big deal, because according to Boniface, no one but the English had ever forced monks to work on royal works. I guess you have to be famous for something. Now, naturally, this probably sprung from the lay control of monasteries. And due to that level of control, we're also hearing of the church being taxed, which was something that they also objected to. What the church wanted was to be set apart from the duties and requirements that the rest of the English subjects were beholden to. But it must have been clear that this wasn't going to be able to be decided at that council. I mean, they had to deal with drunken monks singing songs. So after discussing the need for regular councils or synods, the Council of 747 was brought to a close. Now, for the sake of completion, on this same year, Eardwulf of Kent became king. And then on the following year, Aidbert of Kent died, and Eanmun became king. Don't forget that Kent has multiple kings most of the time. But because not much is known about either of those kings, we're just going to move right along. So... Staying true to the discussion of the need for regular councils, another council was held in 749 at Gumley. And there, King Ethelbald and his council did indeed handle the issues of taxation and of forcing monks to work on royal projects. The church would be free from taxation, and they were also exempt from working on public projects, with the exception of bridges and fortresses. To me, that sounds like Aethelbald was trying to find the middle ground, saying that monks wouldn't have to build an extension on an elderman's estate, but bridges and fortresses were for the good of everyone, so they should probably chip in and help. It seems fair to me. Again, King Aethelbald, in addition to doing a good job securing his kingdom and bolstering his authority, also seems to have had a rather good relationship with the church. Hell, he embellished the shrine of St. Guthlike at Crowland, and he was credited with founding the abbey there. Now, not much is known about the abbey during this period, but it might have been a rather important part of mercy and religious observances due to Guthlach's importance. Anyway, the point I'm getting at is that if it wasn't for this whole nun thing, Ethelbald probably would have had a flawless record. And even despite the nun thing, he was still remembered fondly for quite some time for his efforts in reforming the English church and for his donations. But Aethelbald's life seems to have been filled with mixed successes. And 749, that same year as the council, was no exception. Because while King Aethelbald was probably celebrating his successes in the church matters, 
King Aelfwald of East Anglia died. And that sucks. The thing is that King Aethelwald of East Anglia was probably Aethelbald's ally. And it's possible that Aethelbald was only able to secure his hold on Mercia through the assistance of East Anglia. So the death of his eastern ally must have been a tough blow. And actually, that would start a hundred-year period of obscurity for East Anglia, with the kingdom initially being split between three kings, Hun, Beona, and Aethelbert. We think. It isn't really clear whether the kingdom went immediately between those three kings, or if they ruled in succession, or some sort of blend. The records are rather muddy and contradictory on that matter, but it does appear that things over there would have been a bit rowdy for quite some time. And Aethelbald's influence in the region probably weakened, or completely broke, when his ally, King Aelfwald, died. So yeah, that's a pretty tough blow. And what we might be seeing here is the beginning of King Aethelbald's problems. If I was going to write a book on Aethelbald, I would probably title it Mixed Blessings. Because for every good thing that happens to him, something bad comes along. Or when something bad happens, something good comes with it. King Aethelbald just had one of those lives. And in this case, the king had the benefit of a very long life. And typically, you would think of that as a pretty good thing. But when we look at the charters and the witness lists that were contained therein, it looks like King Aethelbald might have been outliving his supporters. And that's not good. In an era where rule was based not just on a claim, but also on who supports your claim, the death of your supporters was a very dangerous thing for a king. And it might have been this developing weakness that started to make Aethelbald's enemies rather brave. In particular, King Cuthred of Wessex, a king who was so thoroughly under the Mercian thumb that he joined Aethelbald in his fight against the British, possibly under threat of force, even though his own lands were being given away by, you guessed it, that same king. I mean, that's some serious domination. Aethelbald's running around giving away his land, and then he demands he goes and fights one of Aethelbald's enemies. That's tough, and King Cuthred was getting sick of it. So in 751 or 752, possibly because he saw how weak the Mercian king was becoming, Wessex revolted. And at Beaufort, King Aethelbald and King Cuthred met. We don't have any records of what the fight looked like, but the Mercians were pretty damn good at fighting. However, so were the West Saxons. And in the end, Wessex was victorious, and they put the Mercians to flight thus securing the independence of Wessex that would last for the rest of King Cuthred's life. A few years later, in 754, St. Boniface died, and that would have been a rather sad event. But at least Aethelbald wouldn't be getting any more irate letters about his sexual habits, so that's good, I suppose. And then in the following year, in 755, King Cuthred of Wessex died. Do you remember how I said that King Cuthred secured West Saxon independence for the rest of his life? Well, he did, but it was a rather short life. And the throne passed to Sigebert, but not everybody agreed with that. In particular, Chinewulf had serious reservations and thought that he should be king. So, we have another West Saxon civil war. And due to that, King Cuthred's revolt only managed to secure the independence of Wessex for about three or four years. But what are you going to do? 
And now, with Chinnawolf and Sigebert fighting over the West Saxon throne, Ethelbald had an opportunity to exert control over the kingdom on his southern border once again. Now, some scholars have theorized that Ethelbald supported Chinnawolf during the West Saxon Civil War, sort of like a repeat of the fight between Oswald and Ethelherd of Wessex. And the notion is that through mercy and support, Chinnawolf soon boxed Sigebert into the region of Hampshire. And then in 757, we're told that King Sigebert of Wessex was deposed and died, and King Chinnawolf took over. Now, if Ethelbald did support King Chinnawolf, it would explain what happens next, because the new king of Wessex immediately appeared in a charter where Ethelbald was giving away West Saxon lands in Wiltshire to an abbot. Of course he was giving lands to an abbot. Ethelbald loved giving lands to the church. But it is rather telling that he's giving away West Saxon lands and that King Chinnawolf was okay with it. So it does appear that Wessex was once again back under the Mercian thumb. But interestingly, when we look at that charter, Ethelbald was no longer listed as the king of the Southern English. He was just the king of the Mercians and the surrounding people. Now, this might have just been a stylistic choice by the scribes. As we discussed earlier, they all have their own style of writing. But it also might have been an indication of Ethelbald's power beginning to wane, and that he was losing his grasp on some of the southern kingdoms. And on top of that, he does seem to have been dealing with some issues within his own kingdom. For example, we have records of Ethelbald compensating a Mercian abbess after he killed her kinsman. We aren't given details on what exactly happened, but it does sound like there was a bit of unrest, and that he was both trying to maintain power through the sword, while also trying to avoid the rather significant issue of blood feuds that dominated this era. So, you know, kill a rival, and then just pay off the family so they don't come a-knocking. I guess it makes sense. Though, it doesn't look great, does it? But, all of that aside, things were still going pretty well in 757. King Ethelbald had a good relationship with the church. Boniface wasn't sending him any more hate mail. King Cuthred was dead. The new king of Wessex was firmly under his thumb. Everything seemed to be coming up Ethelbald lately. And frankly, Ethelbald deserved a bit of good news. He'd come a long way from the kid he was, living in the marshes with St. Guthlac. Sure, he had troubles, he had wars, and he had his fair share of controversy which would have been even worse if it wasn't true. Can you imagine that? If he was single for personal reasons and the stories about nuns were just that? Stories from his enemies? How much would that have sucked? But after 41 years of rule, he was undoubtedly one of the most successful Mercian leaders in history, and truly one of the greatest English kings of the age. I mean, he was supreme in the South for at least 30 years. No other king had managed to maintain that level of power for that long. He really deserved a pat on the back. And while traveling through Seconton near Tamworth, he was murdered by his own bodyguard. Yep, that's what happened. And we don't even have a motive for it. We have no idea why he was killed. And we'll talk about the fallout in a future episode. But the rise and fall of Ethelbald is really one of the great stories of this period in history. It's complex and shows how delicate and messy the political structure in Middle Ages England was. And the contradictory aspects of this point in history can even be seen in how he was remembered. Much like Osred, 
He was remembered fondly by the ecclesiastical community, despite the issues of his personal life. Looking at the records, despite the fact that a contemporary writer had written of him as a royal tyrant and imagined that he was rotting in hell, Ethelbald was still well regarded by the church and his supporters for performing good works, making large donations, prohibiting theft, perjury, and rapine. He was also known for defending widows and the poor, and for maintaining peace in his kingdom. He was a complex figure, and while I can't say whether or not he was in fact rotting in hell, what we do know is that he was buried at Repton, and some have suggested that the mounted warrior with a sword, shield, and rather fetching mustache on the Repton stone might be an indication that it was a monument to one of the most successful Mercian kings of that era, King Aethelbald. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, you name it. And you can find links to all of those, as well as a link to our rather awesome Heptarchy family tree at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening.